Matt, welcome back. It's the Tom Hanks season. Oh, man. Oh, my mom loves Tom Hanks. She will be thrilled to hear this. I am so happy that your mother will listen. Oh, yeah. No, my mom never got stuff from Blockbuster when we were kids, unless it was the new Tom Hanks movie. She had to see the new Tom Hanks movie every time. (laughs) What a throwback Blockbuster. R.I.P. Oh, man. Yeah. How old am I? (laughs) I know. I mean, like, we were alive for Blockbuster, y'all. People say I'm young on on this all the time. Like, I was around for Blockbuster. I have vivid memories of going to Blockbuster. So, man, well... Let's head to Blockbuster and pick up the movie that I've not seen, Philadelphia. Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, so uh, I don't know how much research you've done into the career of Tom Hanks, but- Very uh, little. (laughs) Yeah. Possibly you know that this was his first Best Actor Oscar win. Oh. Yes. uh, His first of two. Uh, So if you're going to map the career of Tom Hanks, this movie is very, very crucial. Oh, but wow. it okay. is not in any I don't it's nowhere near as famous as his second Oscar win Forrest Gump. Oh, also another one I haven't seen. Stay yeah. tuned. Well, That'll be later. <laughs> <laughs> but but I will say uh, both very good performances. This is by far the better movie. I think okay. my opinion. Yeah, I think my opinion on Forrest Gump was made pretty abundantly clear in the Shawshank Redemption it episode. It was. Yeah, but it yeah, was. <laughs> Forrest Gump. Not a good movie. Apologies Which is to why whoever I did not ask you. To- <laughs> yeah. Apologies to whoever you got to do Forrest Gump, who loves Forrest Gump. I really don't like that movie. All right. Well, uh, I think they. I don't know. We'll see if they like it better than than you do. Which is fine. But okay. So I actually don't. What's so sad is this movie was recommended to me to add to the list. I did not know about this film. Um, I did not. I mean, I didn't research it. I didn't read spoilers or anything. I do know that Denzel Washington is involved because pretty much when people say Philadelphia to me, they then immediately said, say Denzel Washington. And then I go, no spoilers, no no spoilers. So um, I don't know. I mean, I looked at the, I don't know if it's like the movie poster or whatever, but I looked at the image that comes up when you Google it kind of vibes. Mm-hmm. And it seems just like very dark and dreary, but I'm not, I, I can't even guess. So like, I assume you've seen the, the poster that has Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington, like the gavel. They are yes. just kind of in black and white. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's super yeah. dreary. So like, I don't know if it's going to be like a big, long episode of Law and Order, but. Well, like, I'm going to warn you because this seems to be a thing that comes up. It is not a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't so getting you know, horror movie vibes, but I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so I don't really know what I'm in for. I look forward to it now. I didn't realize that this was his first uh, win, so I'm happy and excited to go watch this film. Welcome to Jackie Watches Stuff. This is a podcast chronicling my cinematic quest to finally watch the movies I probably should have already seen, and I'm bringing my friends along with me. This was definitely not a horror movie. No. So I have to check on you now. So like, how are you feeling after watching this movie? Oh my God. Okay. I'll be honest with you. I only watched this movie about 24 hours ago and I am still very, um, very emotionally raw, I think is the phrase. Wow. Wow. Uh, yeah. Like I remember you telling me when we watched Shawshank, just like how, like how bad you felt watching that movie and i was just when you when you mentioned philadelphia i was like oh she's gonna have a miserable time with this oh my gosh oh my gosh it 
Wow. Whew. Um, yeah, this was a lot of movie. I am now understanding when you have feelings about this versus Forrest Gump. I haven't seen Forrest Gump, but I I get it. I get it without even seeing <laughs> Forrest Gump. Um, this was incredible. I mean, wow. Um, but let me, before I start like getting all emotional, I will recap this film, um, which is crazy because I normally bring like all this crazy high energy and I feel like this film isn't high energy and, and it's going to feel weird. But will you time me as I try to get through this very important movie um, yes. in 30 seconds or less? <laughs> yes, I will. All right. Ready? Okay. Set. Go. Okay. There's a lawyer guy. His name is Andy. He gets promoted to senior associates and gets to represent this really big client, but he's really sick with AIDS and nobody knows. It's very, very sad. But then he gets fired from the firm for seemingly misplacing a complaint, but he believes it was set up because he has AIDS. And then Andy tries to build his own case, but teams up with this lawyer named Joe, who's kind of homophobic, but that's like a side thing. And they take the old firm to court. It's super rough. Joe freaks out because everybody thinks he's gay. Andy gets more and more sick, which is super, super sad. Joe starts to turn into a better person and Andy significantly gets significantly more sick throughout the course of the trial, but they end up winning the case. And sadly, at the end, Andy passes away and it is really heartbreaking. Okay. Time. Uh, you you did not make it in 30 seconds, but I didn't want to stop you because I wanted you to get to the emotional. I core felt of the like, film yeah, there. I was like, please don't cut me off before I can explain. Oh my gosh. And I don't even care that I went over time. Normally I care. Right yeah. now I don't. I mean, I will say you mentioned that uh, Denzel Washington's character, Joe, is kind of homophobic. That's kind of a side thing. I don't know if that's a side thing. I think that's kind of the point. Yeah, it kind of is a thing. I was. That was something I wanted to talk about because, like, I think when I was re- when I, honestly when I was writing my notes for the thirty second recap, I was like, "Ah, oh, this is kind of a side thing." But going back and thinking more about this film, yeah, like Joe does become a bit of a better person, but his homophobia yeah. is really jarring. Um, well, in the I mean, that's that is. I think that's a huge point. Like, this is a movie about homophobia as much as it's a movie about AIDS. I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely. I mean, this this is. Um, widely credited as being one of the first Hollywood movies to like deal with AIDS in really yeah. any meaningful way. There were, there were a few like, I don't know, probably like a few like more underground movies that dealt with it, or it was, or it's certainly been like mentioned offhand in a lot of movies before this, but this is like probably the first major Hollywood movie that actively on the forefront dealt with the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, I did not, grow up in I mean I did grow up in the early 90s but I was not old enough to realize it right and so watching this was so interesting just from how we talk about AIDS or sexuality now yeah and I mean some of the like some of the things in this movie feel a little bit dated today Mm -hmm. just like because like I remember distinctly there's a part there where he's coming out of the courthouse and someone yells at him it's Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve which is you know kind of a thing that we make fun of people for saying today Mm -hmm. but like and that's kind of thrown in there without even a hint of irony Mm -hmm. because like it, it hadn't become a cliche yet yeah and this is like my ignorance of this time the you know the early the early 90s was this the attitude widespread or was this movie a, a really intense dramatization not to say it was perfect in the early 90s but you know was this we see the riot outside the courthouse with Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve all that you know was yeah. that happening around this time i'm inclined to think so yeah i mean cuz i mean this is still a few years before uh the larry project happened mm. um when a lot of these issues came, you know, 
got like massive national attention. Like, cause I mean, we can, you know, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, but this is, this movie is based on a couple of real life cases. Right. But I mean, had you ever heard of them? I hadn't until I no. saw this movie for the first time. Yeah. And that's the thing is, I think, I don't know if that's just a, a consequence of, I know Matt, you and I are very close in age. We were technically alive in the early nineties, mm-hmm. um, but definitely not old enough to have opinions on people with AIDS. And no. so I don't know if that, that was common enough or if this was all happening behind the yeah. scenes. I mean, the idea of, you know, AIDS is being treated like the plague or I don't know, like, you yeah. know, like, I don't know if people knew about this. Well, and it's also, it's kind of interesting. It's a little bit coincidental that we're watching this now because I've actually been uh, watching the last season of the show, The Deuce. Mm-hmm. Uh, if no one has heard of that, it's a show on HBO. It's about the golden age of porn. And mm-hmm how this show works. There's three seasons of it. You know, each one takes place a few years after the last. So it starts out in like the mid seventies and the the third season takes place in 1985 when the AIDS epidemic is just raging in New York. Like it's decimating New York. Mm -hmm. And there are, and so I was watching that and I, then I was watching Philadelphia and it was very interesting to see how they portray AIDS in the, in the aftermath, because they're kind of showing, because, you know, Philadelphia is, like, the AIDS epidemic is still, is still raging. It's still terrorizing, you know, massive, you know, massive mm-hmm. populations, yeah. you know, in New York or in Philadelphia or in, like, lots of major cities. Um, so it was very interesting to see how they portrayed it in hindsight in the deuce versus how they're showing it in Philadelphia, which is kind of when it was still going on. Yeah, and I think, I mean, they, this movie, I've not seen the deuce, but the this movie looks at aids and also high, really highlights and underscores all of the stigmas like we see mm-hmm. joe like doesn't want to touch him or when uh when andy comes into joe's office for the first time to plead his case we the camera cuts to when um andy takes his hat off and puts it on joe's desk and we cut to that hat to kind of imply like, oh, Joe is watching where everything gets touched. He immediately calls his mm-hmm. doctor and is like, doc, I think I have AIDS. There was a guy in, in my office that has AIDS. Like we see all of these stigmas get played out. And I'm not sure if – I think that was part I – would, I would hope that was intentional um, oh, from it, the it, writers. It, it definitely was. It definitely was. Because like we can get into the history of this movie pretty soon if you want to, because I think when you look at the context in which this movie was made, there is there is no there's no way that that was not intentional. Yeah, I think I mean, I read that like the the production team, the writers, the directors, they they felt like so called to write this this film. Yes, yes. For uh, so if I may, this movie kind of got made for a couple like very specific reasons, um, and. It goes back to, so Jonathan Demme directed this movie, and just a few years earlier, he had directed one of my all-time favorite movies, The Silence of the Lambs. Like, I mm-hmm. I love that movie to no end. Um, I don't want a, this to become The Silence of the Lambs episode, because you should <laughs> you should do an episode on that movie, by the you way. You do know I have not seen it, but now I know who uh, I'm going to call. Yes, yes. Please call me when you do The Silence of the Lambs. I, would, I could talk for hours about that movie. But, um, so he makes The Silence of the Lambs, a few years early and it just it cleans up at the oscars it's a massive hit um like it it wins best picture he wins best director jodie foster wins best actress anthony hopkins wins best actor and it wins best adapted screenplay it 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 cleans up at the oscars mm-hmm. and it's also a massive box office hit so 
Jonathan Demi, this is kind of, you know, what people call his blank check movie. Like he made all that money and he got all that prestige for the studio. They're willing to let him do kind of whatever he wants right now. And, but as a result of the Sons of the Lambs, again, I don't want to get too much into the plot because you should watch that movie and we should do an episode on that. Um, but Jonathan Demi is feeling, you know, he's feeling a little bit guilty about the Sons of the Lambs because it, it, it's hard to describe, but because I actually think the Sons of the Lambs is a movie that in a weird way seems progressive now, but it's also a movie that has been grossly misinterpreted by all the wrong people. Okay. So there is kind of an aura of homophobia and transphobia, but homophobia just in general that comes, that kind of surrounds the Silence of the Lambs. So now that he has this blank check from the studio to kind of make whatever movie he wants, he is moved to make this movie about AIDS and about homophobia that he has kind of been gestating for a little, for a while. Mm-hmm. This this movie was they started writing this movie like in the eighties because I believe um, the writer of this movie and I believe Demi might have known this person too they they knew someone who died of AIDS and so they had been thinking about writing this movie and making this movie for a good for a good long time and now they're finally able to do it because of the success of the Silence of the Lambs which mm. I don't know somewhat coincidentally or you might say ironically it has you know an, an, a very unfortunate aura surrounding of homophobia and transphobia even I, though I don't really think those things are in the movie. There's some, I think, really, I mean, as I'm reflecting back on it, the only character I remember being extremely overtly homophobic is Joe. You know, he has that whole speech with his, or not even speech, but he's having that conversation with his wife in the kitchen and, you know, is like, how are you a man if you're going to do that to another man? And um, how can you be a, I hate it, a macho and a faggot at the same time? Like, you know, those lines. But I don't, and and maybe I'm wrong. There's also a lot of characters in the bar. I think the bar scene is, you know, where you see a lot uh, of homophobia coming out. Yeah, Yeah, because they make lots of, uh, lots of gay jokes like oh because you're representing someone who's gay Mm -hmm. are you turning and and those types of things which is such an outdated way of looking at homosexuality it is and there's also there's also the scene in the drugstore where you know the the guy hits on him Mm -hmm. and you know he kind of freaks out you know it seems you know and it's you know it's the kind of thing where you could say hey joe maybe just say no thank you right like the same way if a woman was trying to pick you up in a you know right pharmacy or whatever right like chill mm-hmm. out no this um, th- this movie is definitely you know about joe overcoming his homophobia yeah at least in part it seemed to shift for me so rapidly um in almost a in a almost unbelievable way because we have that scene in the law library where uh andy is you know he's he's got the lesions on his face he's wearing the skull cap so he he's a spectacle you know, folks are looking at him. Um, Joe notices him and the librarian comes over and basically says, hey, can you please leave because your your lesions are making us uncomfortable and your AIDS is getting in the way. That's um, a great line where he says, uh, would you be more comfortable in a private study room? And, yeah. uh, and Andy says, would it make you more would it make you more comfortable? Yes. Yeah. And like calls him out. But mm-hmm. The only reason why the librarian lets up is because Joe comes over and and defends him, which is really nice. Like, I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that Joe wouldn't help him because he's gay. I don't think he's that incredibly homophobic. But he just, like, suddenly takes on the case and all of a sudden, like, that whole speech you were just saying to your wife about, like – Well, I think – yeah, and I – well, I think the thing – what's interesting about the character of Joe is that this – 
to begin with, at least, this is very much just a legal question for him. Mm. Because, you know, he see Andy go see him in his law office asking him to take the case. And he, he tells him no. He tells him no because he says, shouldn't you have disclosed your illness to your employer? To, to him, he doesn't, have a, he doesn't have a case, even though he, they just show him earlier telling this guy who'd like, walked past a sign and fell down a manhole or something. Right. He's like, oh, yeah, you, you totally have a case. Yeah, you've got a case. Yeah. So I think we're so I think what we're seeing in that scene is not just Joe starting to have, you know, sympathy for Andy, but also kind of seeing, oh, this is this actually is a discrimination case. Do you think he becomes less homophobic or just more interested in the law? (laughs) No, I think he does. I think he does, because I think I think he I I think when they show him going to see Andy in the hospital towards the end of the movie. Mm hmm. Um, and I, you know, I think we see his, uh, ideas about AIDS become more grounded in reality Mm -hmm. for sure. And I think that there is, I don't know if I'd call it a friendship that has struck between him and Andy, but they, I don't even really know how to say it. It's, it, they they have a very interesting relationship, but I don't think would be possible if Joe did not at least partially overcome his homophobia by the end of the movie. Right. Yeah, it's fair. It's an it is an interesting character arc for him. I think I would want to rewatch this film and just really focus on him. I was just way too overwhelmed with everything else going on, Matt. I'm going to be honest with you, but like <laughs> it was it's an interesting arc. I think for me, and that's one of the scenes I want to talk about was the scene where uh, after ho- the Halloween party, where Joe is trying to go through the the mm-hmm. question and answer briefing with him before his trial or his testimony rather. Um, and uh, it was, I keep wanting to say Tom Hanks, but Andy, um, you know, you, you listens, can say Tom Hanks so everybody will know who Tom you're talking Hanks. about. <laughs> Tom Hanks, Andy, Andrew uh, is, is talking about this opera uh, music that he's listening to. And this was like such a moment. It didn't mm-hmm. truly cinematically. And I think you probably have more to say on this, if anything. Cinematically, I don't think it fit the movie at all. Um, it had this weird lighting. It had like weird camera angles it just didn't feel like it was in the movie but emotionally and like in terms of the plot line this was such a moment where joe just lets him go and and lets him live this moment and feel these things but he also tries to leave the room as quickly as possible and in that exact moment i was super jarred because i was like joe where are you going what are you doing but i i think it is because he has come to term with Andy's death and also realized that this is like death is near. Like you, when you realize your own mortality, it's like a terrible thing. And he runs home, hugs his, his kids so big or so hard, runs to his wife with his coat still on. Like he, Joe has such a transformative moment too. And I don't even think that Andy realizes that. Yeah. I'm going to say, I think you analyzed that scene correctly. Yes. Um, yeah. I think that that is very much, I think that that is a scene where, Andy comes to term with the idea that his life will soon be over. Mm-hmm. And it's, and Joe is uncomfortable with that. Joe hasn't accepted it. Cause they, cause they, um, there's earlier in the scene, Andy asks him, you know, do you pray? And he says, and he says he prays for some pretty simple things. Like, you know, I pray that my daughter is healthy. I pray that the Phillies win the pennant, you know? Mm-hmm. And then immediately after that, there's this really, really striking moment that you pointed out where, and he is, it's hard to even say he's, he's kind of transcendent in that moment. Yeah. He's, he's almost like letting his life go and, 
because he just he knows that it, it's coming to an end soon and that like that would be uncomfortable for me to sit there and, and witness in real life right yeah it's but, so hard to mm-hmm. accept your own mortality it is mm-hmm. bizarre but yeah that was that was one of my I don't want to say favorite scenes but it was a, such a striking moment um yeah in this I will say movie. that that is so Jonathan Demi who I, I I assume you have probably haven't seen any more of his movies but he is he he's kind of a chameleonic director there's a lot you know there's not a lot of things you can catch latch onto in one of his movies and say okay this is a Jonathan Demi thing mm-hmm. but there are a few very key things in this movie that I think do tend to be his trademarks first of all is you know people looking directly into the camera when they deliver certain lines that's yeah. a very Jonathan Demi thing mm-hmm. and another is I don't, I don't want to say that this scene is like trademark Demi but it like I, I was watching this I was rewatching this the other night, probably around the same time you were in order to get ready to record this. And I thought, Oh, that does kind of remind me of the scene in Silence of the lambs that oh. we will, we will certainly get into. Yeah. It's the tone is radically different, Interesting. But, okay. but the kind of the way he shoots it and kind of the way he, and just kind of like the sense of unease that he's trying to build in this scene is, is very much something that you see from him. Interesting. Yeah, all those shots, uh, I should have written this down, all those shots of people delivering lines straight to camera is a very interesting choice. I mean, I understood it from when we were in the courtroom and we mm-hmm. hear Joe and um, I forgot the lawyer's name, but the the defense. Mary um, Steenburgen is the name of the actress, but yes, uh, I, yeah, I can't I know, remember her character name. I do actually know either. her name uh, in yes. real life, which is crazy, but yeah. um, I forgot her character name. But yeah, we see them delivering uh, you know, their opening statements, which makes sense. But some other lines, I mean, you see when uh, when Andy and Joe, I distinctly remember when they're meeting in Joe's office for the first time, a lot of that is right to camera. Oh, the um, line where, where Andy says, well, that's disappointing, was just cutting. Oh, yeah. And like that works beautifully shot that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't really see that conversation. I'm trying to remember. I mean, obviously, I would have to go back and reanalyze it, but I don't even remember if we see most of that conversation with the both of them in the same frame or not. I'm wondering if it flips back and forth for most of the time. He does that a lot. Again, this that is something that in The Silence of the Lambs is very key in a very, uh, very famous and very pivotal scene of that movie. That's a thing he does. He does quite a bit. All of the cinematic choices, which half of them I probably didn't even recognize because I don't study film were very interesting. The ones that stood out the most to me were the straight to cameras and the lighting during that scene when Andy is listening to the opera and to use your word becomes very transcendent. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a very epic scene. (laughs) It is. I also really liked in terms of the, the writing and the, the story as a whole, I really appreciated all of the cutscenes between the court proceedings. And maybe this is just because I watch too much Law and Order, but I'm so used to like the first half is how is determining the murder and what happened and getting all the clues and pressuring witnesses. And then the second half is watching the courtroom. And this was not quite that. So, you know, we cut over to the the moment when Joe gets hit on at the grocery store. Miguel has to administer Andy's treatment, which was like such a hard scene to watch. Oh, by the way, we have to mention very early performance from Antonio Banderas, Antonio right? Antonio Banderas is in this film. Yes. <laughs> I should talk about that. Yeah. Wasn't expecting to see him. It was one of those moments because, you know, 
watching these now for the first time, I get very jarred seeing a lot of these actors and actresses when they are so much younger. Mm -hmm. And so truly when Antonio Banderas is running, his first scene is when he is running to the hospital. And I'm like, this this looks this looks like someone I know. Like I don't. I, he looks familiar, and I had to look up, and was so sad that I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's Antonio Banderas." But of course, when so, he started talking, I was like, "Oh, it's Zorro." Never mind. I know this. <laughs> Zorro. <laughs> so yeah. So if we can like pause the courtroom to talk just about Andy and Miguel real quick, because yes. their relationship is so interesting to me. Absolutely. Because so one of the knocks on this movie tends to be that people find their relationship not believable like they find it very chaste they find they get they they a lot of people are really upset when they see this you know gay relationship in this movie that seems so non-sexual and but but the thing to me is like every time you see them interact i'm like that is totally a married couple interacting right there yeah and i mean it's not like this is a super sexual movie either like even like denzel and his wife you know it's not like they're going at it all the time Mm -hmm. you know it's it's a very very you know both of these you know this is a relationship between two people who have lived together for a very long time i think yeah i think i mean that is like a weird stereotype of yeah. non-straight relationships that they are also hypersexualized. Yeah, like, well, like, the no. thing that continues that continues today. Sometimes some a little bit with like I don't know if you you watched Modern Family when that was on. I think that one had a little bit more weight to it mm-hmm. when the I can't even remember the name of the of the characters in the show, but there was like an online campaign to let for the writers to let them kiss. Oh, I, I missed yeah. all of this. Oh part. yeah, that was a thing. And I I, I think that there is certainly there was certainly more credit to that argument. I think the fact that they wouldn't even kiss on screen was pretty odd. Yeah, no, I think it's just so weird because I, I don't know when I'm, if, if we were watching this and it was, and uh, Andy was, I mean, Andy was straight and he had a wife and she acted the exact same way as Miguel acted. I don't think anyone would even care. Like just because they don't, I don't know. Like it's and just when your such a is, knock. And I know and I'm like taking out my anger dying, on you. You're not going to jump his bones, right? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. And also if you're really sick and tired, you're not going to be all over your partner. Like, right. That's... But they, the, the conversations that they do have, I think are very true to life or uh, mm-hmm. t- as to like, you know, a uh, you know, a regular married couple. I, I, totally saw my parents in both of these characters several times yeah or even when when we first meet miguel and he's running into the hospital and yes. being i mean i i really just felt like my mother was in the room because like with the book of all of his treatments and ailments and and records and no that's not going to work i know best even though i'm not a doctor <laughs> you know like that that is so that's such a bummer that that folks were so um yeah. or when critical. he's just like when he's trying to you know do the do the treatment there in their apartment and he's just and when Andy wants to skip it for the night and he just stands there hands on hips just like what do you mean you want to skip your treatment yeah like that's not what you do <laughs> yes yeah and that's somebody like someone who loves you is going to put up a fight about that mm-hmm. and say Absolutely. no you're you're doing this bud like this is what happens yeah. wow what a bummer people are mean <laughs> well i mean i think i mean this movie is well cuz there's that and i think Something else that strikes me about this movie is that I think was probably probably pretty pr- progressive even for the time was the scenes with Andy's family when they go over to his family's house and he's just there with his partner and nobody cares. They all know he's gay. They yeah. all accept him. They all love him. He has a family that is supporting him 100%. Like, that's a thing that you don't even see 
in a lot of movies or TV shows today mm-hmm. about like there's there always has to be the the plot line about how oh their parents are disowning them or whatever. Yeah, but it's really really striking to see uh, a character like Andy who's who is not disowned by his family, but is as a matter of fact completely and totally supported by them. Yeah, and that's what is like. I was actually I'm so glad you brought this up because I forgot to write it down. Like that's what was actually insane is. Andy comes out to his whole family and says, listen, I am going to take this to court about AIDS, that thing that has a terrible, terrible reputation right now in the early 90s. Are y'all good? And there, there's normally the one, like you said, there's normally like the one brother or like, the, you know, the bratty sister who's like, well, I don't, I, you can't mess up my career, blah, blah. And everyone's like, no, that sounds great. Like we're here. Like that was so crazy. And I think the like you know, that was not a coming out scene for him. He wasn't there no, to no, tell no, them not he was coming gay. Out as gay. No, right, right. I, I know what you meant, but I mean, uh, the, the point still stands that that was not a coming out scene. They have known he's gay. They've known about Miguel. They've known about his relationship and his life for years, seemingly. Yeah, and they and love this, this Miguel. Is, Everything's great. Yeah, this is a normal part of their lives. Yeah, they they don't look at Andy like he has some like they aren't willing or not even not willing. They won't not touch him or. They don't slink away when they get near thinking that you can catch gay or catch A's. Like yeah. it's, it's, it was so, I'm so happy for that. Cause I think yeah, that, that, might, that might be my favorite scene in the movie. Cause I think that's, that's really one of the most beautiful yeah. scenes in the movie. Oh my gosh. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your, your musings on the, on the courtroom uh, and law and order type stuff there. Yes. Um, but, uh, but I want to go back to that because I think that's another reason why this movie got made is because uh, courtroom dramas were big box office business in the early 90s mm-hmm. you can check out a, like uh, a time to kill was a big hit around this time i think the firm was a big hit around this time mm-hmm. um i'm pretty I, I don't think the rainmaker was a big hit but i mean it was directed by another pretty pretty famous uh, director around this time as well so they, they were doing big business and so you're you're not wrong about the fact that you know there there was a really a potential for this to just become another just like you know law and order episode or whatever yeah i think i mean i i thought it was kind of cool i mean i know too that this was happening over several days so that also makes Mm -hmm. sense that it kind of cut back and forth but it was nice to see pieces of these people's lives in between it i mean we had like the Halloween party, which I just need oh, to that ask. was a great scene, yeah. So not – I mean, there are so many takeaways from that Halloween scene, and this is definitely not one that everybody takes away. But I need to know, what was Joe's wife dressed as? I couldn't That's figure a, it out. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> she was wearing something on her – like like a cutout thing when she walked into the party. But then later, when they're listening to the um, acapella group, she's not wearing it, and she has like a ketchup and a mustard a bottle taped to both of her wrists. And so it's like, maybe she was like a lettuce leaf, like going for a hamburger vibe. I don't know, but I need to know what she was dressed as for Halloween. <laughs> uh, that's, I, I have no idea. I, if I'm almost like, I feel like if you hadn't asked me, I might've been, I might've had an idea in my head, but since you <laughs> asked the question directly, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> I'll have to go. I'm sure there's yeah. cuts of it on YouTube. Maybe I'll just have to re rewatch. But if anybody yeah. knows what this freaking Halloween costume was, cause I was very confused. Even Joe's lawsuit makes sense. I got it right away. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, a, it's a terrible joke, but it makes but that's sense. <laughs> me. 
That's me on Halloween. I hate <laughs> Halloween, friends. I hate it. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. I love it. I hate it. I hate dressing up. I'm, I love I am Joe. I am lazy as hell. And so it's like, what can I make that is near me that is easy? And it's like, oh, a lawsuit. One time, whoo, here's one of my Halloween costumes that I made in college. I took a white Hanes t-shirt that you buy in the three packs from like Walmart and I put numbers all over it and I was someone you can count on. Oh my god! And when you're drunk, that joke's not funny because everybody that was drunk was like, "Are you math?" And I was like, "No, I'm not math." They're like, "Are you prime numbers?" I'm like, "That's a really interesting guess for someone who is in your intoxicated state." No, I am not prime numbers, but thank you for your okay. Well, um, all right, I want to go back to the courtroom just one more time because there's one thing I I really really need to point out Um, because uh, there is a brief appearance in this movie. By someone who, if you are going to start watching a lot of movies like you are, this is someone who you need to know. Okay. So, the character of Mr. Laird, he is the guy who, he's, he's the first witness in the trial who, who changed his statement about how he felt about Andy's work, if you recall. Yes, okay. Yeah, okay. So, the guy playing Mr. Laird mm-hmm. is a guy named Roger Corman. Okay. And he is low-key one of the most influential people in hollywood oh it's yeah it's i don't i don't know if you can call him a kingmaker but he has launched the careers of so many famous directors that you have absolutely even if you haven't seen their movies you you know these names like you know jonathan demi is one of his um francis ford coppola ron howard james cameron all these people probably would not be where they are without this guy so who, if you don't know who Roger Corman is. Okay, I don't. He, yeah, okay. <laughs> he, well, he, he's the guy in Philadelphia. But, right, he's that guy. I, I, okay, yes, I know that but, much. But, but it but, seems but, like there's more I should know about yes, this guy. Yes, there is more you should know. So Roger Corman is a film producer. He is a producer of just super low budget, just, you know, written, shot, shout out, like usually just like sci-fi movies, horror movies, like, you know, exploitation movies. Stuff you saw in like the grindhouses back in the day, okay. Like if you saw something like like you know, like uh, I don't know, I don't know, like Santa versus the Martians or something like that. That's the kind of stuff that he he would make them super cheap, um, you know, and just get them out. And he made tons of money. He has a book out, something about how how I it's I can't remember the exact title, but it's like how I made two hundred movies in Hollywood and never lost a dime. Wow. Something like that. But so okay. he he basically has what they've kind of called the Roger Corman film school where people would come and work on his movies and then some of them would be directors. Some of them wouldn't direct until later on, but they would work on his movies and he and just they would get their first credits and then that would just like launch them to success. Like there's a famous story that Ron Howard told on another podcast where he was directing a movie uh, for Roger Corman. And he and he he was directing a scene and he needed more extras than they were giving him. He needed a bigger budget scene. Mm-hmm. So he goes to Roger Corman and says, I need some more extras. I can't do this scene unless you give me the budget to hire more extras. And Roger Corman says to him, look, I can't give you any more money to hire more extras. But if you can figure out a way to shoot the scene with the extras you have, you'll never have to work for me again. Wow. And so... As a result, because he's launched so many of these careers, he gets like these just tiny speaking roles 
in so many different movies from so many of his like proteges. Like you can see him in the, in the Congress scene in the Godfather part two. Uh, he shows up in the signs of the lambs. Huh. You can, you can spot him in a lot of different movies. And Jonathan Demi was one of his, was one of his guys. Jonathan Demi's first movie um, mm-hmm. was probably the most famous women in prison movie ever made. It's called caged heat. Okay. And it is, uh, it's something. <laughs> um, it but, has an interesting title. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a women in prison movie. Um, if you're mm-hmm. just today learning that women in prison movies are a thing, I'm sorry. I mean, I guess I didn't <laughs> know it was a sub, sub genre. Oh, like, Jackie, I, it is, it is such a sub genre. You have no idea. Oh, interesting. that is such a rabbit hole you can dig down. It, maybe you don't want to. Maybe that'll just be next season's theme. <laughs> you and me. <laughs> just you and me doing women in prison movies. That's it. <laughs> but it, it might be the most famous women in prison movie ever made. And Roger Corman produced it. And because Jonathan Demme, he's a, he's a very interesting director in that he made, it's interesting that he made a movie like Philadelphia because he started out there. Like he was making, you know, low budget B movies and kind of like weird art movies. Like anytime he tried to make a commercial movie, it, it usually failed. Mm-hmm. But like his, I think before The Sons of the Lambs, his most famous and like most successful movie was Stop Making Sense, which was a constant movie for the talking heads. You you say all those words, and I I definitely you, know you've heard what of the I'm, talking heads, right? I yeah, Matt, of course. Burning of course. down the house. <laughs> Why don't you just share with our listeners what it is, because they the might not. Talking, know. The talking heads are a it's band. A, it's um, a band. Oh yes, they I got are it right. a band. Okay, it's a band. They are it's a, a band. It's a great yeah. band. It's my favorite band. I love this so, band. <laughs> so I mean, if you okay, the for our generation, if you ever saw, did you watch Doug when you were a kid? Yes. Okay. So in one of in one of Doug's fantasies, where I think he's he's imagining himself to be a rock star or something like out like that, and he okay. comes out on stage wearing a gigantic suit. That you is have such a memory for the TV show Doug from the early nineties <laughs> that, that I do that not a, have. That is a reference to the Talking Heads. Obviously, and I know Jonathan that. <laughs> and Jonathan Demi uh, directed their famous concert movie. It's called Stop Making Sense. Okay. And that before the Silence of the Lambs came out, that was probably his by far his most successful his most successful movie, which clearly Ever. wasn't that successful because I don't know what it is. But that doesn't say that much, I guess. Yeah, I was Never about mind. to say. I'll take it back. <laughs> I have a whole podcast about how I haven't seen films. So. <laughs> wow! So this this cast runs deep, is what you're saying? It does. It runs. I mean, when you think about it, you know, it's you know, it's Tom Hanks' first Oscar win, um, and you know, in a kind of a uh, a pretty. I don't know if it's a risky role for him, but it was a different role for him. Like I think when I said earlier that this movie, his like his career doesn't really make sense without Philadelphia. I mean that because like he was a movie star at this time, but this is kind of where he got the America's dad persona that we all kind of know him from. I love that. I yeah. Love that. I mean, before, cause like before, because he'd done kind of serious roles up until this point, but for the most part, he was a comedy guy. You know, he he got his start doing stuff like Splash and The Burbs and Bachelor Party, and then you know he got his he got his first Oscar nomination for Big, which, while you know, certainly a kind of a, a more low key performance was, and you know, made people go, okay, this guy is a star and this guy is a good actor. It was right. still a very comedic performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is a, just a different. This was a yeah. very different side of Tom Hanks that yeah. even honestly I didn't know really that yeah. that well. So you've um, got like that kind of performance from Tom Hanks for kind of the first time. You've got Denzel Washington who 
Um, almost didn't get this part, but we can talk about that later. Denzel Washington also coming off a massive Oscar snub the year before this movie. He, uh, it's widely considered that he should have won Best Actor for Malcolm X the year before, mm-hmm. um, but he did not. He lost it to Al Pacino, who should not have won that year. He should have won several times before, but that's kind of how the Oscars work. You know, if they if they've messed up in the past, they'll make up for it eventually, even at the expense of others. But you've got him, you've got, yeah, you've got, well, it's, that's not a hot take, I promise you. (laughs) Um, But you've got those two performances. You've got, you know, a very early performance from Antonio Banderas. You've got Mary Steenburgen uh, and you've got Roger Corman. So yeah, this is a, this is a stacked cast in a lot of ways in some low key ways. Yeah. There were a lot of, a lot of faces I recognize. And now Mm -hmm. after that explanation, a lot more faces. Oh yeah. The judge, the the guy who played the judge is uh, Charles Napier. He's a very famous character actor. You can yeah, see him in a. Oh yeah, like I, I mean, is this a movie you've seen? Have you seen the Blues Brothers? No. Okay, <laughs> that's probably. But the, I yeah. did when I was in. I forgot how old I was, but I did tap dance to the mo- to the song Soul Man. So I feel like that's close enough. Soul Man is not actually in the movie. Well, um, we were but... dressed like them. <laughs> yeah, no, that is a song they did on Saturday Night Live, but it's not. It's not part of the movie. Damn it. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break. I have to recover. (laughs) Sorry. Hi, everyone. I can't guarantee that this break is going to be as well produced as the opera scene in Philadelphia, but I will try my best. First of all, I have to thank all of our patrons who support the show at the Academy level and higher. They are Linda, Jarrett, Bree, Paul, Missy, Mick, Hannah, Tom, Donna, Logan, Lindsay, and Ebru. Thank you all so much. If you want to support the show, get a shout out, get access to really cool stuff, head over to patreon.com slash Jackie Watches Stuff or check the show notes. Do you want the Jackie Watches Stuff logo on a blanket? How about a t-shirt that says, no, I haven't seen that movie? Well, you're in luck. We have a dedicated Jackie Watches Stuff merch store. Head down to our show notes for a link, and this is a great way to support the show and get some cool swag. You can find Jackie Watches Stuff anywhere you listen to podcasts, including on our website, JackieWatchesStuff.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review, and follow us on Twitter, we're at Jackie Watches, or follow us on Facebook, find Jackie Watches Stuff Podcast. All right, back to the show. Okay, Matt, I know you hate fast facts. I don't I don't hate fast facts. <laughs> I just I I much more enjoy like analyzing and discussing the movie as part of the culture. That I, is so but, true. But but I know you love your fast facts, so I am willfully taking part and I got some fun ones for you, I think. Oh good. Okay. Um, well, I want to share because you had mentioned it. I did in my Fast Facts notes have the two discrimination cases that helped inspire the film. We talked about it earlier and admittedly mm-hmm. I did not have my notes in front of me to cite that. Um, so I won't go through all of them super long. But there was a man named Jeffrey Bowers. He was in a New York law firm and he was fired when they discovered he had AIDS. And then there was Clarence Kane. Um, that was fired from a Philadelphia law firm when uh, he was discovered to have AIDS as well. The men won in both cases. Um, The first one from the New York law firm, he actually passed away 
um, six years before they settled that case, which ended up being he was awarded five hundred thousand dollars in damages. Um, So uh, but apparently I read this, too, because this film was loosely based on his life and he wasn't compensated because he had passed away. The family actually sued um, the company or the film, which is kind of sad. But (laughs) yeah, it does put a little bit of a damper on what was otherwise a very nice movie. (laughs) Yeah. But and I didn't realize that these this was really a true story. I mean, really, like not I it's it's, you know, based on it. I mean, they changed all the names. Yeah. To to say it's a true story, I think, is a bit of a stretch. But a lot of the details were taken from those cases. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So I just I thought that was really interesting. Okay. well, um, do you know uh, any of the any of Jonathan Demme's first choices to play Joe Miller before Denzel Washington? Was it Tom Hanks? No, it was not Tom Hanks. <laughs> um, no, uh, he his first choices were Robin Williams and Bill Murray. Whoa! What? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he really wanted to have a comedic actor play that role Why? for whatever reason. I I'm not totally sure. I think because he was afraid that the subject matter might scare people off unless they had like a familiar, like funny guy face to attach to it. I mean, but, not that Bill Murray or Robin Williams could play a serious homophobic lawyer. Um, representing their ill victim, but like, was the plan to make them like crack jokes about the dude dying of AIDS? That's not a I, good look, dude. Yeah, I have. Well, I mean, so it's Robin Williams is an interesting one because this is kind of just before his big dramatic turn. Every like comedic actor kind of has has a point where they try to do like a dramatic turn, right? Where it's this like, is, look, I'm is, not just a comedy guy. Yeah, and this was like Tom, this is you know Tom Hanks's pretty much, but like a few years later, Robin Williams or. Did Dead Poets Society come out before this? I can't remember. Oh, can't remember when Dead Poets Society. You came think out. I know these things, Matt? <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm putting it out into the ether. I can't remember when it came out, but he, Robin Williams, of course, won his Oscar for Goodwill Hunting several years later. Okay, and has and has done a few. Kind of had you know a string of more serious movies like One Hour Photo, Insomnia, two movies where he plays a villain, which is interesting. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, and. Uh, and Bill Murray, you know, Bill Murray kind of does whatever Bill Murray wants to do. Yep, he's just around. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he's just around. But yeah, he's definitely had his had his dramatic turns over over time as well. Those are really interesting choices. I'm not sure if I like either of them. I did actually see along those lines a top choice to play Andy. I don't know if you knew this one. Uh, I think I do. I believe Daniel Day Lewis was up for the role. Was he not? <gasps> You 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 researched. I'm so proud of you, Matt. Yes, it was Daniel Day Lewis, um, which I'm not mad about that one. But apparently, the the ironic twist is that uh, Daniel Day Lewis passed. Tom Hanks got the role, and then Tom Hanks was up against Daniel Day Lewis um, uh-huh, for yes. his Best Actor Oscar because Daniel Day Lewis was. In, in the name of the father and lost to Tom Hanks. So, which is a very interesting movie. Um, but I, uh, I will say that that probably burned Daniel day Lewis up to no end. Cause here's the, th- I, Daniel day Lewis is a great actor. I still find him kind of annoying okay. just because there, there is not a role he takes where he's not begging for an Oscar. I mean, but at that point you kind of gotta, I don't really disrespect the game. 
I mean, I, 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 I disrespect it a little bit just because I think he's an asshole on set. Like he, like he famously, when he did my left foot, he refused to get up from his wheelchair and had like stage hands, you know, carrying him around all the time because he had to play, you know, a guy who couldn't walk or move. Oh, method. And so he basically, yeah, yeah. Oh, he is like the method actor. And when he was when he was on the set of Lincoln, he made everyone call him Mr. President. It was. He, oh, yeah. No, he's a he's a headline grabber as much as he is an actor. Ooh, more hot takes. I love it. <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah, that was my other weird, uh, weird role switch switcheroo. But we okay. ended up with this one. So speaking of the Oscars. Um, yes. Tom, so Tom Hanks has won Best Actor twice for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, as we established. Yes. But he has been nominated for Best Actor three other times. Do you know what those movies were? You, okay. Do you think uh, I've seen all of them? That's no, my but I, I'm, I'm wondering if you have any guesses. Other Tom Hanks. Okay. I'm just going to guess from other Tom Hanks movies that I've been told to watch. Uh, Castaway. Yes. He was nominated for that one. Uh, Sleepless in Seattle. Nope, not that one. Hmm. Okay, my I'll final. Give you, okay, I'll give you a hint for one. We men- I mentioned it literally just a few minutes ago. Saving Private Ryan. Okay, that is one. That wasn't the one I was thinking. I was of, like, I, yes. don't, I don't know what else you mentioned, yeah. and it was uh, just okay, one that the, came to my head. The other one he was nominated for. The, his actually, this, this is actually his second nomination. His first nomination was for Big. Oh, duh. Yes, you yeah. did. Me- yeah. You just mentioned that one, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> and he uh, very recently he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, where he played Mr. Oh, Rogers. Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Which wow. is stunt casting of the highest variety, but I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, why not? Truly. Yeah. I mean, I've seen stunt casting go horribly wrong, but because I mean, one of the knocks against that movie, it's a, it's a pretty good movie, mm-hmm. but one of the knocks against that movie is that, you know, Tom Hanks doesn't really look like Mr. Rogers. He doesn't really nope. sound like him all that much. Nope. But I'm just like, who else can you, if you, if you had to ask, no like who, yeah, who no else one. is going to play, who else has like the... Just like the aura to play Mr. Rogers, other than Tom Hanks, America's dad. You know, he has that vibe. Yeah. Yeah. He was not, we were talking about this earlier, but he was definitely not America's dad in this film. And this was his like, look, I can be serious. And he was real serious because I cried a lot at the end of this film. I mean, he he had done some serious, like I said, he'd done some serious stuff, you know, at at this point. But yeah, this was, you know, this was his real actor turn. Yeah. Yeah. I did want to share one of my... Well, it's an interesting fact, not Tom Hanks related, but um, the actor who plays the partner, Bob, who could tell that he had AIDS, um, and that was like a whole a whole thing, like, oh, Bob, did you know? Did you know he had AIDS? Um, his name is Ron Vodder, um, and he actually died very, very early in life at around the age 45, I believe, um, because he was actually HIV positive, which is very, very sad. And producers actually tried to block his casting um, in part because of his diagnosis, which is so shitty, friends, (laughs) when you're making a movie about how people treat people with HIV in a really shitty way. Um, And I just need to do a call out because he was born in Latham, New York, which is right around the corner from where I was. I lived in Albany and he actually attended Siena College, which was right down the street from where I was living. So just a small shout out. That's where my mom is from and that's where my grandfather went to college. No way. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God, all the connections. I love this. Okay. So yeah. So shout out to Albany, New York. And Siena College. And Siena. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that he's one of, uh, many HIV positive actors who they intentionally cast in this movie. I believe one of Andy's brothers is also, Oh, I uh, didn't know that. Yeah. yeah uh, and, but to, you know, 
add to the sad note, uh, most of them had died within a year after the movie came oh, out. Oh, how sad. Yeah, very sad. But they they went out of their way to cast quite a few actors in in small but speaking roles in this movie. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad positive. to hear that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's super great to hear. Okay, so uh, my next fun fact. Um, so I don't know if you know this about me. I am a massive Bruce Springsteen fan. I don't know if I knew that. I love, love, love Bruce Springsteen. So okay. I, I, one of the reasons why I like this movie is because this got him his Oscar for the song Streets oh. of Philadelphia, um, which uh, even though it was, a, it, it was a pretty big hit, largely because the movie was successful. Right. But this song is not played live very often at all. He performed it semi-regularly uh, acoustically on his solo tour uh, supporting the album The Ghost of Tom Joad, but he's rarely played it with the E Street Band. Was Only like a few a, times. Was this a song and then they put it in the movie or did he write it? And No, it has never it? appeared on a Bruce Springsteen album. Oh, so this was for the film. It was for the film. It mm-hmm. never appeared on one, of his, on one of his studio albums. I mean, it probably, it, it's probably on like one of his greatest hits compilations, of which yeah. he has many. Um, but it was, never, it was never released as part of an album. Hmm. Which is interesting that he doesn't really play it because it was a, it was a pretty big hit. And... Uh, he is known for sprinkling in rarities into his set list. Like the first time I ever saw him live, he opened up with two songs that had never been on albums before either. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I wonder if he just maybe doesn't love the song. You know, like- I mean, so, I mean, building a set list. Here's the thing. Building a set list is, uh, is tough. You have to make it, make sure it flows. Maybe he didn't, doesn't think the, the song flows. Although he is also known for, just stopping the set and taking requests from the audience. Like, like that's a famous thing that people do at Bruce Springsteen shows is they'll bring up, they'll bring signs of songs they want to hear. And oh, every fun. once in a while he'll go, he'll go, anybody you guys ready to play that one? Like, yeah, let's yeah. do it right now. Yeah. Like, wow, again, that's cool. The, uh, again, the first show, the first Springsteen concert I ever went to, this is like a beautiful moment where like he saw a little girl in the, in the, in the crowd who had a sign and he told her to pass it up. And so he kind of held on to it for a little while, but then uh, it got to the point where they were going to play that song. And so he ran around the stage uh, just showing the audience the, the poster with the name of the song on it. It was Waiting on a Sunny Day. They mm-hmm. played the song. And then he just imme- as soon as the song was over, he immediately whipped out a Sharpie, signed it, and handed it back <gasps> to the little girl. Oh, my God. How special. Yeah. Darn. Yeah. Bru- how cool. Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen. You're the man. Oh, my gosh. That's so neat. That mm-hmm. and a really interesting fact. I did not know that that wasn't. I mean, I, I knew it was his song, but I didn't realize that it wasn't like his song. And then they put it in the film. It was the other way around. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because uh, there was so there's Streets of Philadelphia in this movie. Another song that was written for the movie that was also nominated for best song that year was a song just called Philadelphia. And that's by Neil Young. <laughs> oh, not to be confused with Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce. No, <laughs> no. Wow. But they were both Let's nominated for best song. <laughs> cool. Well, good job marketing team on that one good job everybody (laughs) uh not surprising but tom hanks had to lose a lot of weight for this film he lost over 30 pounds and was uh as you could see very very uh slightly emaciated um which was crazy but then i read that denzel washington was asked to gain a little bit of weight which was odd to me um and denzel apparently apparently was an asshole in front of hanks and would eat a bunch of shit in front of him like chocolate (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which is so mean. It is. That's awful. So mean. It's so, I'm, so mean. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, another actor that we that we mentioned briefly, but uh, Mary Steenburgen, who plays the uh, defense attorney for yes. the 
for the for the firm. Yes, the long, um, the long name firm with like eighteen yeah. partners. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that is such a long name. I could never remember what the name of the firm well, is. Well, that's why the table. I feel like they needed like an extra leaf in that table at the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Mary Steenburgen, who, if you don't know her, if you haven't seen Philadelphia, you might have seen her. Her probably her most famous movie is Back to the Future Part Three. Um, She's also you- in Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist on Netflix right now, or Hulu, yeah. maybe one of the two. And she uh, is in a few episodes of Orange is the New Black. So you can see her there. And she is married to Ted Danson, who is another kind of America's dad type Uh, guy that everybody loves. Um, Anyway, her her line, I hate this case, was improvised. Um, She, throughout the course of the filming, she came to hate her character. Really? Yeah. And she improvised that line and Demi kept it in to make her, to make her more sympathetic. Interesting. Mm. She hated her character. I mean, she's, yeah, I mean... Ugh, lawyers. I mean, well, her, but her character. Hmm. I mean, I could go off on a very long tangent about this. That's Please a do. really interesting fact. I mean, I've gone like, off on so many tangents. Please come off on. <laughs> okay, so I mean, yes, like she's a lawyer, but also she is hired to defend. It, and that's one thing I didn't understand. She was hired to defend that firm, right? Like she's not a partner, right? I believe. So, I mean, she's thing, doing I her believe job. Yeah, and I believe it's a thing called professional courtesy, where you know lawyers won't represent themselves; they'll they'll hire you know out. That's fair. Help. Yeah, I think that, but yeah, yeah. I mean, but I mean, I, I've talked to several lawyers in my life who have had cases like that, where yeah, I, I have to do a job. I didn't like the case. I didn't like the people I was defending, but it, it had to be done. Yeah, and that that was it. Must be so hard to mm-hmm. be a lawyer and say, oh, I I know that my client is guilty, or. You know, they're on the wrong side of this, but I have, I'm hired to make them win no matter what. Mm-hmm. How lousy. But, wow, that's so interesting. That's so, I've never heard of an actor explicitly say that they hated their role. So. Well, I don't think she hated the, I don't think she hated the job. I just think she did not like the person she was playing, which, it, it, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it is an interesting way to look. Cause I mean, if you talk to a lot of actors and as someone who, you know, is, uh, not a professional actor, but, you know, has done acting for a very long time. Right. One of the things they tell you is, you know, when you're portraying a character, they have to be the hero of their own story. So for her to, like, not be able to deal with how, like, shitty a person she felt her character was was very, very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Hmm. I guess I've never, as, as someone who's not much of an actor, I've never had to think about it. Um, But I do want to – my other fact was about the courtroom itself. Um, Those scenes were actually filmed in a real courtroom um, that the city of Philadelphia let the crew use, which is really cool. Yeah, good on you, city of Philadelphia. They were in there, yeah. Okay, so I have a question for you, kind of on that note. Why do you think the movie was called Philadelphia? Wow, great question. Is there there a correct answer to this or is it more like – I do not have one. Okay, great. I I feel less pressure. I mean, the only answer that I can come up with is that Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. So oh, I assume okay. that that has something to do with the theme of the movie. Okay. I guess. But that, that's my only guess. That is a gr- – I love that guess. My totally not serious, but if you told me it was real, I'd be like, all right, guess is that Bruce Springsteen wrote the, the song – before they came up with a title and they were like, well, guess we're calling it Philadelphia. <laughs> that is that is not correct. That is <laughs> Also, if they're going to make a movie out of a Springsteen song, there's no way it wouldn't take place in New Jersey, right? 
<laughs> but then Tom Hanks it would have to. to be like a very serious actor with a New Jersey accent. Would you not pay to see that though? <laughs> I don't know. Do I want to see the New Jersey version of Philadelphia? I don't know. <laughs> what, what, what would they call it? What would you call it? Princeton? I don't know. What's a, Asbury Park? I, what, what's, I don't what's know. A, what's I a, only know Newark. I have a friend that lives in Newark. Newark. Oh, yeah. They, sh- they should totally do a movie called Newark. Newark. Newark, yeah. New Jersey. No, they would call it New Jersey, but it would be spelled like J E. How do you spell Jersey? J O I I W E S Y. New Jersey, starring Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. A very dramatic film. Cool. We just made another movie. Can't wait to talk about it. Yeah. Copyright. 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 TM. 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 That's ours. That's ours. Man, yeah, I don't think I was gonna say I feel like I had other fun facts. Oh, I have a really weird fun fact that this is like such a conspiracy, but I love it. Tom Hanks plays a character named Andy, and he will later go on to voice a doll named Woody owned by a kid named Andy. Do 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 do. That is a conspiracy roaming around the internet. People think that's related. I would argue I, those are very common names. <laughs> yes, I I would completely agree with you. And especially when did Toy, Toy Story came out? Like just after this, I feel like yeah. a year, maybe two after a this couple, movie. So that, yeah, and like so, and because if I mean, if you look into the pre production for Toy Story, it was it was nuts to get that movie out. Yeah. So I would think Toy Story was already in the works when this movie premiered. Probably, I, I will say along those lines too, um, because I was such a young kid watching Toy Story, Tom Hanks. And Tim Allen's voice will – I really struggle to separate them from Buzz and Woody. Sure. And so some t- there were moments in this film when I was like, oh, my God, it's Woody. <laughs> like I had to, I had oh, to sure. really – I mean, I think I mean, I think for pe- – like like you said, we are just about the same age. Um, so I think Toy Story was definitely our introduction to Tom Hanks. Yeah. And he was – I don't want to say America's dad, but a very different character than yeah. Andy Beckett, the man who unfortunately passed away from uh, AIDS, which is very, now, very sad. I-, I have to ask – because you said that, you know, the voices of Tom Hanks and Tim Allen are so crucial to the characters of Woody and Buzz Lightyear for you. How do you feel about the upcoming Buzz Lightyear solo movie starring Chris Evans and not Tim Allen? I'm sorry, what? This is, I'm sorry, what? I didn't know this was a thing. You are, oh, yeah. You are breaking my heart and exploding my brain. This, this is a thing. Yep. Wow. I believe it's just called Lightyear. Um, nope, nope. but I'm out, Matt, I'm out. Chris I'm Evans out. is starring I'm as Buzz Lightyear, nope, not Tim I'm Allen. Out. I am out. I am <laughs> so out. All right. So Disney, that is one ticket sale you have lost. You lost it. I will <laughs> burn all of my Disney Plus subscriptions and all my paraphernalia that I own. Wow. Okay. I'm not going to rant anymore because we are talking about the movie Philadelphia right now. We are not talking about how much I am so mad at Walt Disney right now. Um, listeners, what you just heard was the sound of a heart breaking. Man. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Okay. The only other fact I had, and maybe you know what this means, because I looked, I found this fact and admittedly did not do further research on it. I read that this movie was shot in sequence. Does that mean that they shot the the first scene before the second scene before the third scene? Yes, that is what wow. it means. Um Another famous movie where they where they famously did that was uh, maybe you've seen this movie, maybe you haven't, but The Breakfast Club was shot in sequence. I have seen that. That was a much easier movie to shoot in sequence than Philadelphia, I think, though, because there's really only one set in The Breakfast Club. 
That's fair. Yeah, this, and they this don't, is they very don't change clo- they don't change clothes ever in the breakfast. It all takes place during one day. Really, the only time they leave the the library is when they're roaming the halls there. But otherwise, they probably just showed up the day and said, "All right, we're shooting yeah. uh, pages one, two, and three tomorrow. We're shooting four, five, and six. Yeah, I mean, so. I guess it makes sense because we we need Andy to to really become more frail and and thin mm-hmm. and weak, and so it'd be kind of awful for Tom Hanks to have to fluctuate his weight. <laughs> Uh, so I get that, but it is an interesting thing because, as I think many people know, movies are often not shot in sequence. Um, yeah. They're shot very out of order. So um, Very rarely are they shot in sequence, I yeah. would say. Interesting. Well, this this was quite a film. I am so very glad I was able to watch it. And thank you for bringing all of your your fast fun facts, your interesting hot takes, your cinematic deep dives. I always It's always a pleasure to have you on the show, Matt. It is always a pleasure to be here, Jackie. I can't wait to do the next one. And it'll be Lightyear with Chris Evans. (laughs) Oh, that sounds like a fun episode. We should totally do that. (laughs) Yeah, I'll see you then. (laughs) Our guest this week was Matt Lyles. Matt, I would fight in court for you any day. Thanks again to our patrons who support the show. And don't forget, you can do the same at patreon.com slash Jackie Watches Stuff. You can also check the show notes to a link to our Patreon as well as our merch store. As always, you can find Jackie Watches Stuff wherever you find podcasts or on our website, JackieWatchesStuff.com. Don't forget, follow us on Twitter, we're at Jackie Watches, or on Facebook at the Jackie Watches Stuff Podcast. All right, that's it. See you next week where I watch Matt's favorite movie, Forrest Gump. <laughs>